So I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a citizen in the Roman Empire. You're a Christian who comes from a line of Christians. Christians have been living in your city for, for centuries now. You're living at the end of the 200s AD, so not quite centuries, about 150 years, in Lyon, France. This is on the, the, the southern, uh, southern coast of France on the Mediterranean. That's where you live. That's your home. And you've mostly had a peaceful life. Your Christian neighbors have mostly had a peaceful life. For the most part, the Romans don't mind you so long as you don't cause a stir. Every once in a while, there will crop up an emperor who will have a localized persecution here or there. But for the most part, Christians had a basically peaceful existence. Until 303 AD, you're living there in Lyon, and you hear of the decree of Diocletian that now every Christian in the Roman government is fired, dismissed, and that every Christian house of worship must be destroyed, and that every Christian sacred text must be destroyed. And anyone who refuses will face imprisonment, torture, or death. You meet with your local church fellowship there in Lyon, and you're not going to do it. You're not going to dismantle this house of worship where generations before you have Look to the Lord in faith in the midst of the tension of Roman Empire. You're not going to give up the very ground of your hope in the scriptures. And remember, it's not like post-Gutenberg where you have all of these texts available to you. These are, are, are sacred and they are true, true treasures to you. There are so few printed manuscripts of the Bible available to you at this time. And so they're so precious and so everyone decides to flee. Some make it, some don't. You manage to get out of Lyon with some manuscripts of the Gospels, with some Psalms. And you're off in the hinterland, and you just try to make it. And while you're there, you find solace in the songs that God's people have sung throughout the ages. Songs like Psalm 2, where you realize that the one that you serve, he looks down at these little authorities and laughs at them. They're nothing. They serve the one who sits in the heavenly places, enthroned on high over all. He is their Lord. You see, they didn't pursue political power in the world because it just wasn't available to them. The earliest Christians could not pursue political power. Instead, they looked to the city that is yet to come. They prayed for the kingdom of their God to come. And they faced all sorts of tension in the world when they faced up against the political powers. We see this especially in Acts 4 when the Jerusalem church was praying using the very words of the psalm we heard earlier. They come together when they hear about James and John, two of Jesus' apostles, who have just healed a man in the name of Jesus. And then they've proclaimed to the Sanhedrin, to the ruling powers of the Jewish people at the time, who did not like the idea that Jesus was the Christ. They opposed that idea. But they're saying Jesus is the Christ, the anointed king, and he's risen from the dead. You killed him, but he rose. Now the, the rulers, they, they let James and John go, and when all of the disciples hear what had happened, they lifted their voices together, verse 24, and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot 
in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They pray in the words of Psalm 2. And, and note, the church in Acts 4 and beyond, up to the days of this believer in Lyon under Diocletian, they weren't seeking political power. They were seeking Holy Spirit power to endure, to follow Jesus, to proclaim him, come what may, because they know that they will be imprisoned or worse for doing life and proclaiming that Jesus is the risen king. Doing life in his name means trouble for them. But he's their king. He's their anointed Messiah. And know that. So when we say Messiah, that's this word anointed one in Psalm 2. The Lord's anointed is the Messiah. It's the Christ. That's the Greek word for anointed one. Christos. Jesus is the anointed king. They would bow their knee to no other. Early Christians would not have imagined a time when they could be buddies with their government, let alone servants, leaders within their government. That was just unimaginable. And yet, the unimaginable would happen. In the fourth century, imagine you're back in Gaul. You're off just trying to make it. You're serving a wealthy landowner, scraping whatever you can together to keep your family alive. And then you hear the news. There's a new emperor, and his name is Constantine. And this new emperor, you hear, has conquered at a battle, Milvian Bridge, in the name of Jesus. Well, this seems new. This is different. What does this mean for us? Well, Constantine had a vision. And in this vision, supposedly he heard a voice and it said, in this sign conquer. And it was the sign of the, the Cairo. I should have put a slide up, but it basically looks like an X and a P put together. And it, it sort of looks like a cross. It's the first two letters of the word Christos. So in the sign of the cross, in the sign of the name of Jesus Christ, conquer. And then Constantine did. <laughs> he defeats Maxentius at this battle of Milvian Bridge and proceeds to take over the Roman Empire. By 313, he's declared all religions to be free to be exercised in Rome, so, so long as they do so peaceably. So there's religious freedom now. Christians can exercise their faith freely. Soon he is elevating Christians within his court as advisors. And by 380, under Theodosius, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Wow, how the tables turned. Just imagine if you were this person who had lived under persecution, who had seen family members and friends killed, imprisoned for their faith, and now, not only was it okay, it was beneficial to be a Christian. Imagine. And imagine also, if, if you had resentment, you have to imagine there had to be resentment in people's hearts against those who had harmed them. You've been harmed before. You know what this is like. There have been groups of people you felt were allied against you, and you felt resentful toward them. Well, the day had come, and the tables had turned. And now, these Christians had power, and they could inflict pain upon their enemies. And they weren't always challenged in that, because for the first time, Christianity was becoming really comfortable. In fact, 
it was becoming co-opted by Roman cultural values of honor, of conquest, of strength. And so the true Christian message began to be blurred. We could be sympathetic with these folks because for 275 plus years they've suffered. It's been costly. They could lose everything for being a Christian. But now, now they can, you know, they can advertise with their Christianity. I, you guys know how this is, you know. They can put the, the fish on their friendly neighborhood used chariot dealership, you know. You know, I'm, I'm Larry, your, your friendly Christian latrine expert, you know. And now it's beneficial because all the people in power believe in Jesus. Or sort of. Ancient church historian John Dixon describes Constantine's theology as we find it in the sources available to us. He says, the emperor spoke of God mainly as a God of power. His favorite expressions across all of his sayings and writings and decrees are things like mighty one. Highest God, Lord of all, God Almighty. We can say amen to that, right? These are all true things. But if that was all we said of God, what would we miss? If that was all our God talk? Dixon goes on. He says, only rarely does Constantine speak of God as Savior. Never as loving or compassionate. Just as striking. Twice only does Constantine refer to God as Father. Yikes, Dixon says. Compared to the consistent language of love that dominates Christian literature in the first couple of centuries, Constantine's talk of God was grand, austere. Of course, that's pretty poor Christian theology, but zoom in with me here. But it was excellent imperial religion, well-suited to the aspirations of the emperor. And many Romans would have been attracted to this particular way of thinking and speaking about Christianity. And it seems many Christians were happy to sing along, sing along the benefits seemed irresistible. Is this getting close? When we repaint the message of the Bible, when we, we, we gloss over the God of the Bible to make him palatable, convenient for our political purposes. I know we don't know anything about that. But for the early church... They learned to leave behind earthly, earthly benefits. They counted them all as refuse for the sake of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. But now they're going to be faced with the temptation to serve two masters. A church historian, Justo Gonzalez, puts the questions facing the church in this new age of Christendom like this. He says, what is going to happen when those who called themselves servants of a carpenter, whose great heroes were fisher folk, slaves, and criminals condemned to death, remember that's who their savior is, Criminals condemned to death by the state, and suddenly they saw themselves surrounded by imperial pomp and power. Would they remain firm in their faith, or would it be that those who stood firm before tortures and before beasts would give way to the temptations of an easy life and of social prestige? It's going to be a mixed bag. That's the, the history of the church. It's a mixed bag. You're going to see faithfulness, and you're going to see floundering. It seems that after Constantine, Psalm 2's kings of the earth, they just changed God's clothes to make him more suitable for their campaign purposes. It's, it's like the conspiracy of the nations against the Lord's anointed. They just changed strategy, and instead of killing 
God's people, they coddled them. Now, there are still countries where Christians face opposition like was experienced by the Israelites who first sang Psalm 2. There, were, there are still Christians today who face opposition like the earliest Christians in, Psalm, or in, in, in Acts 4. And worse today, 360 million Christians, it's estimated today, live under active persecution. That's a seventh of the global church. One seventh, one in seven Christians, according to opendoors.org. But I want you all to realize today, I'm not speaking to people in other parts of the world. I'm speaking to you all in Larimer County, in 2021 in Colorado, in the United States, where not only do you have freedom of religion, but you actually get to vote. And we live in a time when we need to relearn with Psalm 2 how to relate to the political powers of the world when they're hostile to God's rule. And here's what Psalm 2 invites us to. It invites us to take refuge in Christ alone. That's where it's pushing us today. But what is that going to mean for us in our relationships right here as we live them out? What's it going to mean in our relationship to our local, state, national authorities, the way we relate to other people in this world? Well, how do we relate to anti-Christian political powers? First of all, we're going to see today we take refuge in Christ alone because we don't buy worldly visions of freedom. And secondly, we take refuge in Christ alone because we don't fear the political powers of the world. So first of all, we take refuge in Christ alone because we don't buy their visions of earthly freedom. In Psalm 2, the psalm is, is inviting us to envision, as, remember, as, as God's people would sing this, they're brought into this song and into, this, into the story of God's people, and they're envisioning a moment where Israel's anointed king, their Messiah, is, is ruling from the center of God's people, from Zion. That's an image of, of Jerusalem and of God's people in the Old Testament. But the peoples of the earth want to throw off the fetters of his rule. They're experiencing the Messiah and his rule as an obstacle to having what they want. And so they say in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're seeking freedom apart from God. We've heard this sort of rallying cry of freedom. It's a part of our rhetoric, especially as Americans, right? Freedom. We, we hear it from all sorts of directions. Freedom from William Wallace and freedom from William Wilberforce freeing slaves in England. Freedom we hear from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. freeing the African-American people in the United States. Freedom from Betty Friedan and the bra burners in the 60s. Freedom from our LGBT neighbors. Freedom from Arab Spring revolutionaries. Freedom right and left and in between. Old and young, we're hearing freedom from folks around the world, believing and not believing people. They want freedom, but, but what does that mean to them? And what is freedom? For many of our neighbors, freedom, freedom is just the power to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, irrespective of what anyone says, and certainly irrespective of what God says. That's what many people mean and feel by the word freedom. And here's where I want to challenge you, faith, church, and friends. Many of us quickly think that's what they think. 
But here's what I'm telling you. I, I'm pretty convinced that's what y'all think sometimes. And that's what I can feel like sometimes. It's not just secular folks who want freedom apart from God. It's King David. It's King David who abused the power of the kingship to take a woman who was not his wife to murder her husband, abusing God's law, breaking love over his knee, endangering all of God's people for the sake of fulfilling his momentary desires. It's, it's King Herod who uses violence, murder, sin to advance his political purposes, and yet conveniently identifying as a worshiper and member of the people of God when it's politically expedient. It's Christian social media using politicians who share lies, abandoning the ninth commandment. What are we told? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not lie. And yet we just keep sharing whatever they're shouting without using the wisdom of the scriptures. Memorize Proverbs 18, 17, please. Please. <laughs> the one who states his case first seems right until another comes along and examines him. We don't slow down. We're impatient. We just shout what our leaders give us to shout. And we violate our God's law and lie. And then we justify it later. We shout, freedom of speech. You can't tell me what to say. I can say what I want. But can God tell you what to say? Can the Messiah control your mouth, Christian? It's politicians who paint a picture of Jesus convenient to their party and their platform. He may be Jesus, a, a lover of the poor, a lover of, of justice, good things. But they neglect the fullness of Jesus as we find him in the scriptures and his commands for our whole life. And frankly, they end up neglecting the poor and neglecting justice. <laughs> and then it's politicians who paint Jesus and dress him up in a suit and tie with an assault rifle. And he hates all the people that you hate. And they willfully and explicitly reject Christ's commands to love your enemies. See, it can be believers, too, that are hostile to the reign of the Messiah and to his words, to his decrees. But from the vantage point of Psalm 2, all these folks are desperately naive about the rule of God on earth. As Derek Kidner writes, there is no refuge from him, only in him. Look at verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Remember Psalm 1, it warned us of settling into the path of sinners, taking a seat in the seat of scoffers. Those who would laugh at God's ways, like the fool in Psalm 14, 1, who says, There's no God. I can do whatever I want. I'm free to do whatever I want. Yeah, that'll work for you. That'll work for you for a while, but where's it gonna take you? 
I, th- I think of uh, folks who say this, particularly Christians who, who, who get stuck in that mess. And I would want to respond with at least two things if they were ready to hear. First of all, in those who are opposed to, to Christ's rule, in the words of Bob Dylan, I'd say, you know, you're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. You're going to have to serve somebody. There's no such thing as absolute freedom. There's no such thing as being certainly free of reality. There's no pure independence. You're going to have to serve something. So you could try to escape, say, the ethics uh, of, of God for your marriage. But then are you going to become an addict of sex? Or are you going to come, become addicted to the emotional roller coaster of just chasing the feeling with partner after partner? And can you stop yourself when you know you're harming yourself, when you're harming others? Yeah, you're free in a sense. You can try to escape God's wisdom for enjoying the good things he's made and become a drunk, a compulsive eater, addicted. You can try to escape God's good instruction on the created goodness of work and rest. You could become a workaholic or a bum. Feel free. You can let your desires direct your path wherever you want to go. But are they going to take you where you want to go? The Lord's cords actually hold us into a good path. That's what the biblical authors, that's what King David himself, sinner as he was, found. Paul wrote of this later. He gladly called himself a slave of Christ. And he would write in Romans 6.16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness and eternal life. Long before Paul, Psalm 2 was teaching this very thing, that that happiness was found not in autonomy, not in freedom apart from God, but actually found in becoming slaves of God, servants of God. Look at verses 11 and 12. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That blessed word is the same word as the beginning of Psalm 1, happy. True happiness is found not in self-rule, but in letting the one who made us, who knows our frame, who knows what we need, who knows how we flourish, letting him rule us and walking in his ways. But but sadly, many are not going to be willing to hear this. They're going to oppose this tooth and nail. And that'll work until they come face to face with him. There's a moment in the classic Disney movie, The Lion King, Simba wanders into the elephant graveyard with his friend Nala. And while he's there, the hyenas come and they're surrounding him. They're gonna tear him limb from limb. They're in a conspiracy to unseat King Mufasa and to install a hyena-friendly king, the usurper Scar. And so they're there ready to kill Simba, the prince, and Mufasa's son. And so Simba backed into a corner. The hyena's closing in, laughing at him. He lets out a little raspy, and the hyenas, they just laugh at him even more and close in, their eyes crazed, ready to pounce on him. But then Simba opened his mouth one more time. 
roar comes out because Mufasa comes out all golden, red mane, eyes flashing, his claws extended on those hyenas. And who is laughing now? You can laugh and scoff at the Lord until he appears. You can suppress God's people. Go ahead. That'll work for now. But the Lord, he will arrive. He is Adonai, as it says in verse 4. He's master. He's Lord. And he holds these little hyenas in derision. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But some will bow, their knees buckling in defeat. But some will say at this point, you know, I thought that he was a God of love. Doesn't God love the world? And doesn't he say, love your enemies? How could this God of Psalm 2 be the same as your Jesus? Many people will say that. Well, here's the amazing thing. The surprise of Psalm 2, the Lord's anointed, his Christ came. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. The king did something no one could have foreseen. The only begotten son. I'll tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you're my son. And God sent forth his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. God has proven that he loves this world in sending his son. First, not to crush all his enemies but to invite his enemies home. To lay down their weapons and their offense, and to call him Lord. Romans 5.10, right after 5.8, it reminds us of what we were prior to knowing Jesus. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies, we were rebels. We were following the prince of the power of the air, it says in Ephesians 2. That's the devil. You're going to serve somebody. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This is what the Messiah came first to do, was to invite the whole world to come to him and know safety, refuge. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. So yes, the Lord loves the world, but he will judge in the end. All who do not take refuge in Jesus Christ, who don't come before his cross and say, I need you, Lord. They aren't promised this refuge. He will judge in the end. And he does call us to love our enemies just as he did. But he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We don't take his sword in our hand. We love for now. And so what is left? If, if we recognize that there's no such thing as freedom apart from God, that there's only refuge in him or judgment apart from him, then it's time to wise up. That's what Psalm 2 says, starting down in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You know, if, if this is the wisdom that leaders in the world need, should, why don't we pray 
in that way. First uh, Timothy 2, Paul instructs the church at Ephesus under Timothy to pray for their leaders, for, for, for kings and for all who are in high places, offering supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, that we may leave, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so, so this is what we're called to. Remember, Timothy was serving under Nero. And so you can pray for your Republican leaders. You can pray for your Democrat leaders. You can pray for local, state, national. We pray for all who are in high positions, that they would see that there is one higher than them and that they would fear and wise up. They will give an account. And secondly, you know what? I pray that you all will wise up. I pray that you would stop putting so much hope in these little political leaders. I pray that you would. You have a calling to submit to them until they call you to break God's law. I preached about this last fall. Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus' words, render to Caesar that which is Caesar, to God's that which is God's. Remarkably, in a democracy, we can even vote out folks we regard as more evil than the other. We can civilly protest, but we do not take vengeance. We do not use sin. Where did we get the idea that we could use sin to bring God's kingdom to earth? Lies, violence, meanness, total rejection of God's character and commands? Don't be duped. Wise up. Take your temperature on this. Are you more amped up about your favored political candidate or the person of Jesus Christ? We talked about this last week. What we meditate upon forms us. Are you looking to, watching, thinking about 24-hour news Note the air quotes, news. It's not news, it's entertainment. They're shoveling you whatever you want. Eat the popcorn. Drink the Kool-Aid. Are you meditating upon those talking heads? Or are you looking to your head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and letting him form you? We are called to look to our king and take refuge in him alone. Our king says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world, Jesus said. John 18, 36. Now, for those who are very invested in political processes, for those even who are involved in politics and political office, you may come to me at this point and say, but, but if we don't use the things that they use, we might lose. If we don't use the weapons that our enemies use, then we're going to lose. Now you're getting it. What did Jesus say? He said, those who try to keep their life, they're going to lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake and for the kingdom of heaven, they'll find it. The early Christians lost everything when they confessed Christ. Winning wasn't in the playbook. 
But for us now, who can have comfort and Jesus, security and Jesus, things the way we want them and Jesus, we can be tempted to hold on tight to what we want and to use sinful means to keep it. But I'm telling you now, this is no path to winning. The only path to winning is through the cross. If you would follow me, Jesus says, take up your cross, come and follow me. Come what may. Let your character, let the character of the kingdom, let the light of the world shine in you. Not the darkness that they use. What will win in the long run? Do you really think the short-sighted, violent means are going to win? That's not how we bring the kingdom. We're called to lose, to be faithful, to let the Lord win through his ways, through his wisdom. So as we sing Psalm 2, we're formed in a different way than our neighbors are with respect to political powers in this world, to take refuge in Christ alone, not buying into lesser visions of freedom. But we take refuge also in Christ alone because we don't fear them. And I'll be as brief as I can on this point. I have two dogs. I have two dogs. They both have poo in their breed names. Collectively, they weigh less than 20 pounds. But whenever a person comes to our door, they are barking like pit bulls. You know, they're ready to defend us from whatever terror may be in the backyard. And they run out barking into the night. They're valiant. But if a real threat came to the Hoffelmeyer house, the poo dogs are toast. <laughs> and Psalm 2 is inviting us to envision living in a world with real, scary political powers. The Israelites knew military powers that just tramped through their lands generation after generation. The first century Christians knew Roman might. There's probably no better picture, nothing closer to omnipotence than looking at a Roman phalanx. And yet, this psalm is teaching us a feisty faith to see Roman spear, to see Russian invasion in Ukraine, to see Chinese encroachment in Taiwan, to see leftist agendas in secondary and elementary schools, uh, to see right-wing fanatical religious groups that are just totally off-kilter misrepresenting God. And see all that misuse of power in God's world and say, you know what? They're just little poo dogs. They're nothing. We know what they are. We know our Lord. We know where the story's going. Isaiah teaches us to look at these men and say, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? They're little poos. Psalm 2, starting in verse 7. We take sides with the king. I'll tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We're on the side of the Lord who commands the armies of heaven. Read in Revelation 19 as this verse is alluded to. Jesus will come and all who oppose him will regret it. The second time he will come, not in humility, but in glory and power. And the time is today to turn to him. 
because that's where the story is going. He will come and establish his kingdom and all who stand opposed to him, who hold on to their kingdoms, they will fall before him. And so how do we relate to hostile anti-Christian political powers? We take refuge in Christ alone because we don't buy their vision of freedom. We take refuge in Christ alone because we don't fear these little poos. <laughs> and so today, I just want to call you Faith Church. If you hear the voice of Jesus, if you see him as your king, I call you to just bow the knee of your heart before him. And if you've never done that, if you've never said, you are my Lord, you're better at being Lord than I am, Lord. I, I want you to be in, in charge of my life. I want hope. I need the forgiveness you came to offer. I've made a wreck of my life. If you've never done that, I hope you would go to him in prayer. Look to him. See his face. When you see the line of the tribe of Judah, he's not just fearsome. He's surprisingly welcoming you to know himself. He suffered to make himself safe for you. <laughs> because he is not safe but he would be a refuge to you if you would come to him. We want to live Psalm 2 together, not just sing it. So how do we relate to hostile anti-Christian political powers where we're not naive and duped by false visions of freedom? We don't fear these little poos. We take refuge in Christ. So I invite you to do that with me now. Lord Jesus, we take refuge in you. We confess that we have sought to take refuge in earthly politics. We've sought to take refuge in all sorts of things that we think we can control but Lord, we need you because we're not in control. And when we do, we mess it all up. So take control of our lives, Lord Jesus. Take control of this world. Your kingdom come and your will be done. We pray in your name. Amen.